You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're still going through First Samuel. First Samuel, yeah. We took a break in kind of a weird place um, <laughs> last week. Well, and speaking of weird breaks, um, the chapter's kind of broken in a funny place. It, it really so, is, yeah. Um, yeah, The uh, but we stopped right after David went and killed some folks and brought some cattle <laughs> back to the, the Philistine king. So that's... And David's been killing people. See you later. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I mean, I yeah. It sounds very flippant, but you know, serious matter. But yeah. Well, it, it's, and but you know, I think one of the reasons why we laugh too is because it is so puzzling. It's like, what do you do with it? And you know, our go-to uh, way of dealing with anything is humor. So if y'all haven't picked up on that by now, fair enough. And uh, but we we are in chapter twenty-seven. Uh, it's a really short chapter, and it's. As we said last week, it's not picked up by the writers of Chronicles because it's a really odd chapter in which David doesn't seem to be acting like David at all. And on one hand, but on the other hand, he's very much David and mm. that he is, even though he's not really talking to God, we're not hearing much about God's involvement with what David's doing but we are getting David the warrior who is going out and pursuing God's enemies and we're learning now, we're, we're going into verse 10, that this is part of a major deception that David is perpetrating on the king of the Philistines. Mm. So we'll pick up in verse 10. And when Achish said, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the Jeremelites, I love that word, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. So Negev just means south, so the southern parts of these okay. tribes. Well, that help, that's helpful, actually. Yeah, I, one, of those, one of those questions I can answer easily. Uh, and he gives this list of people, and he, he says he's, he's fighting and making raids against Judah, which is his own tribe. Mm. Uh, the Jamirites are uh, descendants of Yerach Meil, uh, which means my God is have compassion, my God have compassion. Uh, it's a clan within the tribe of Judah, which actually takes us back to that previous list whenever um, David was pretending to, uh, when it gave us who, I'm sorry, when it gave us the actual list of people that David was really attacking. And I said that that one group might be a sub-clan within the larger group. This is what's happening in this list here that he's giving to the king of the Philistines. Yeah. So that that kind of lends credence to the idea that the Gershites and the Gersites were were a major clan with a subclan because Judah and the Jamirites. That's exactly what's happening. So right. we see that kind of mirrored uh, right there. So you, know, a lot of times uh, you will find that. When you have these lists, you can line them up that way and go, oh, this is how it was used this way, so it's got to be mm -hmm. used this way because we have a direct parallel. And, of course, the Canaanites, we've talked about them before. They are a part of the, tri um, a part of the tribes that have joined with Judah. They were outside of Israel. They were descendants of uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Right. So they're friends of of Israel. They're friends of Judah, and they actually get absorbed into Judah at some point. And so basically David's saying, hey, I'm going after my family. I'm going after my family's friends, anyone who's chosen to align with Israel. Mm -hmm. And he, he's telling this, this bald-faced lie to the king of the Philistines. And in, in verses 11 and 12, we're, we're told why he does that. He, he kills everyone so that no one can go back to Gath with the news. And he's doing this, uh, you know, assumedly for the, hundred, for the entire year and four months that he's with the Philistines. Uh, we have no reason to think that he just suddenly quit. There's no spiritual reason ascribed to the actions. There's no religious precedent that is cited. Instead, we're given this cold, calculating warrior king who's doing what he's good at. Mm -hmm. And he is very good at it. And not only is he very good at it, 
so that no one he attacks escapes to inform on him, he's also very good at inspiring loyalty from his men. 600 men and their families are keeping the secret for David. Sure. So, I mean, when you think about it from from that perspective, I mean, what's the old saying? Three, three men can keep a secret if two of them are dead. I mean, that tells you about the kind of loyalty that, that David has inspired from his people. So verse 12 seems almost to be like an afterthought, and it, it, it's a um, way to sew up some, um, some connections a little tighter within the narrative in case you missed it. Uh, I'm just going to read it. It says, And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he will always be my servant. So, you know, on the most basic level, mm-hmm. Achish is saying, David's going to be reliant on me. Mm-hmm. Israel's never going to take back this guy as their king. And so he's always going to serve me. And this is a great asset. Right. Now, do we have any tie back to Dina here? This is exactly what we've got. Okay, that's what I was wondering, because <laughs> you made me a stench, or has, has become a stench. It, it, that's exactly what's going on, because David, in the, earlier in Samuel, and we've talked about it before, we have that connection back to Jacob. And who is Jacob? Jacob the deceiver. Jacob the one who, who is able to manipulate a, um, a circumstance to his betterment. Mm-hmm. And we even talked about that last episode, how Jacob was the one who... You know, yeah, he took the birthright, but we already knew that was a promise that was given to him, and he he worked it out for himself. Right. And in this moment, we've got kind of this this retelling, and it's not a dead on retelling; it's more of an illusion because David has fled to Achish much in the same way that Jacob fled to Laban's house. And so there, there's this whole connection with the Jacob, Rachel, Laban saga, and we're going to see it come up again, even in chapter 28, where all of this plays a part in filling out this picture of who these men are supposed to be, Saul and David, where did they fall in line in, in the whole narrative, mm-hmm. and what are they drawing on from the past? And so Jacob, you know, when he goes to Laban, he accumulates wealth. He, he becomes a man of honor, somebody who's very respectable. He becomes known for being, you know, someone worthy to be followed. This is what David's doing at the same time. He, he's doing the same thing that Jacob was busy doing when he was in Laban's house. Mm-hmm. And you'll notice, too, he's got two wives, just like, like um, Jacob acquired two li- mm-hmm. wives in, in Laban's house. But the connection back with the stink, you, you've, you've made me odious, you've made me so um, obnoxious to, to the people, goes back to a quote from Jacob. It's given right after, um, if you go back to Genesis, you would think I have written it down, but I didn't, but the, it's the rape of Dina. And after uh, Dina has been raped, Simon and Levi, they go into Shechem and they massacre everyone in the town. Well, Jacob didn't like this because he thought that he was going to be able to kind of schmooze his way into Canaan. He was going to be able to, you know, make the right business deals, make mm-hmm. the right treaties. And he even was seemed agreeable to let Dina marry Shechem. Mm-hmm. But it was Simon and Levy who said, no, this, this cannot happen. You don't get to cr- commit this great act of violence against our sister without there being some kind of uh, retribution. And I think what we're seeing, not only, we're, we're being shown that David just isn't a representation of Jacob. He's a representation of Jacob's sons. And that Jacob's sons, the, these great warriors who were known, and I mean, the Levites, a lot of people forget, the Levites were considered to be the, the most violent tribe in all of Israel. Right. They were the ones that everyone was terrified of. And David also takes on those qualities of, the, uh, of Simon and Levi who, who say, you don't get to commit violence against the ones we love. And David is attacking people who committed violence against the ones God loves, mm-hmm. ones that he mm-hmm. loves because he loves God. So in a way, what the, what the king of, of uh, the Philistines is saying right here is, Yes, David has become a stink to the people, but he doesn't realize the truth is David hasn't become a stink to Israel. He's become a stink to, to Canaan yeah. and the Philistines. And in some sense, he's actually confirming that David has fulfilled the promise that was given to Jacob. And just like Simon and Levi symbolically 
uh, conquered Israel. They, they made the first decisive conquest in the land of Israel and symbolically conquered it when they destroyed Shechem. Now David is carrying through with that legacy. And so he's beginning to fulfill promises that not only fulfill um, Hannah's promises and prophecy, but we're now going back to the time of Abraham. We're going back to Jacob and Isaac. And everything God had said was going to happen in, in Genesis is finally beginning to take shape here. And so we, it's, it's a really complex picture, but it's also a very well-defined picture when you know what you're, you're looking for with those phrases. Yeah. And so because I mean, you just picked up on it right there. And that's one of the great things I love about this writer, Samuel. He's, he's constantly uh, picking up on these things and, and bringing them back to our attention. So you, you did mention that this chapter uh, breaks in a very weird spot. It is a very weird spot. Yeah, uh, it's actually caused some debate with commentators whether the first two, or I'm sorry, the first three verses of chapter 28 should go with 27 or if uh, they belong where they're at. Uh, On one hand, they really do, if you read through the first three verses of chapter 28, they they offer a nice kind of summation and conclusion to... um, the thoughts that Achish have, they give us the results and the consequences of Achish's thoughts towards David. However, they do also nicely introduce the situation that leads Saul to take one of the most desperate moves of his entire reign. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I almost think that the two chapters shouldn't be separated in some way because they do flow so nicely. And that is one of the things that we forget how well the, the writer was... Um, expressing his craft whenever he wrote this, if we kind of read through uh, in these broken ways. But again, we're all about the context here. So, Right. You doing okay over there? I think I'm going to sneeze. Oh, okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll catch it in post. False, false alarm. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to open up uh, chapter 28. Uh, I know a lot of people are really excited to get into chapter 28 because this is the famous story of the Witch of Endor. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, her role, but we're going to, before we do that, let's let's go through those first three three verses and kind of tie up that thing with David and Achish and how it's, how it's impacting Saul, because all of this stuff with David in the land of the Philistines is happening while Saul is going to visit the witch. So right. this is kind of uh, background. So verse 1, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me uh, in the army. So basically, Achish is is saying, you owe me. Right. It's time. You're going to join us. And we are kind of left with this cliffhanger. uh, You know, what's David going to do? Because he answers in verse 2. But listen to how he answers. Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. What does that even mean? I, I mean, it's so David, it's ambiguous. Yeah. <laughs> You'll see what I can do. Yeah. You'll see what I can do, all right. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go fly off the top of the roof of the house and, you know, you can see what I can do. Uh, you know, it, it's, okay. it's not, there's no <laughs> commitment to actually carry well, through. Well, no, I, I, think, I think it's a, it's a like a, oh yeah, you think you... Uh, you think you've seen what I can do in battle? You're really about to see <laughs> what I can do. Yeah, well, kind of and, <laughs> but you know, David and his political talk, and I think we forget that David is the very much the uh, politician, and I think this is a great example of it. And but Akish, of course, he hears what he wants to hear in it, and what he wants to hear oh, in yeah. it. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's the thing. I mean, people who are really good at persuasion can tell you exactly what they're going to do. But, I mean, but if, you, if you're dealing with someone who's got like this, who's so tied up in their own affairs, you can tell them whatever you want. They're not, they, they are not going to get it. I'm thinking of the number of people that our father would say something to, and we're sitting there with eyes bulged out because we can't believe he just said it. And mm-hmm. they're just thrilled that he, he said mm-hmm. it because they weren't listening to what he actually said. And, you know, so David, you know, he's neither denying uh, nor confirming anything. Akish is just, he's thrilled with what he thinks is a confirmation. David's going to be his bodyguard forever. Mm-hmm. And, and Akish has now elevated David in the same way that Saul did initially. So you, you 
you can't believe that David's putting too much stock in this this position of favor. He knows what can happen. Even when the king says you're his favorite one, uh, you still might get a, a spear thrown at your head. Mm-hmm. So then the, the writer jumps us back to, to Saul, and he says, Now Samuel had died, and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had put the, put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. So um, we're reminded that Samuel has died. Now, we, we've, we already know that he's died. Uh, this has been reported to us in the past, but the writer needs to set up the scenario. Yeah. I don't know. We may get to this later, but I think it's interesting that the JPS renders it. Uh, Saul put out... Um, oh, I'm, I'm real bad about this reading. I've <laughs> uh, been losing my place. And Saul had forbidden uh, recourse to ghosts and familiar spirits in the land. Okay. So. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, what terminology we should use, because if you grew up like we did with the King James, this is the Witch of Endor. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, it became very popular to call her the medium of Endor. So we're going to talk about what those terms mean. And, and, what... and of, of course, you know, growing up in, in some of the circles we did, uh, you know, Endor's the name of the moon where the Death Star orbited. <laughs> and so therefore, you know that the people who wrote Star Wars were evil. Exactly. Exactly. So use the force. Awful. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's also where the Ewoks lived, and we love the Ewoks. The Ewoks were great. But that's how the evils get you. They bring you a little cute teddy bear guys. Little fuzzy things with... Yeah. 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 So we don't actually <laughs> believe that, um, by the way. So I no, just uh, thought it was funny. Yeah. It, these are the sorts of things, too, that we kind of pick up on because uh, we were raised in a hypervigilant environment. But that's what happens when you're scared of evil all the time instead of focusing on God being the yeah. victor. And I love the fact that God you know, God says it's one, so we want to focus on him. But we are going to take some time to to ask what he might be teaching us in this particular story. So we, we're being told that Samuel is dead. Uh, this is important because um, Saul's rule's always been defined by his relationship to Samuel. Mm-hmm. A, from the very get-go. I mean, when David was anointed king, Samuel just left, and they really didn't have much interaction. I think they got together one other time after the anointing, and we are not really told what happened there, but it seems like every time Saul sneezed, there was Samuel there I mean, to, you know, scratch his nose. I mean, right. it, it really wasn't... Um, Saul did not rule independently of Samuel, at least he did not rule well independently of Samuel. <laughs> he didn't rule well with Samuel. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> so, but Samuel was kind of like the, the last restraining force with, mm. with Saul. Uh, he, he did keep him in check somewhat. The other reason why this might be significant, and I, I say might, this is a rabbinic uh, tradition, was the idea that under Samuel's influence, this is when Saul had forced the necromancers and mediums out of the land. And then with Samuel's death, then Saul had not kept up with it, and they began to creep back into the nation, and this is the reason why she can be found. It's feasible, I suppose. Yeah. Because I mean, Indor, Indor is in the territory of Israel, do we know? This is a question. Yeah, we're going to be talking about where, why that's—yeah, the, the location is significant. <laughs> so we're, we're going to figure that out. So we're, we're being told— we'll come back to your question— but we're being told about an event that's not been reported. And, um, you know, up to this point, we, we didn't know anything about this, whether this was even on Saul's radar. I, we didn't know if he cared about witchcraft. I mean, he, he doesn't seem to care about a large portion of the Torah, right. except for whenever it suits him. And so this is where the story starts to get complicated. Hmm. Like, I, I'm sorry, they just, there was a dr maxi birch anytime like anytime there's certain things that you say that remind me of this line that he uses all the time in his classes and i haven't taken any of his classes but i've, I've listened to some of his podcasts some of the there are some of his classes mm-hmm. that he posted on on apple podcast and and there's this line he's always they don't do it today but they did back then and he's always like he always says it ironically but he's <laughs> a, he's like but when you were talking about like saul only paying attention to the torah when it's convenient like that's immediately Anytime you say stuff like that or like the way people play politics, that's immediately what I think is the 
Yeah, they don't do it today, but they did back then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and what I think is funny, I think a lot of times uh, we actually, at least in our tradition, we've read it where we do it today, but they didn't do it back then. Right. That, right. You know, they, they were so holy that they, they were not human any longer. But And so much so the rules didn't apply to them because they were all perfect, I mean. Uh, yeah. Right? Isn't that yeah. what we're supposed to believe? Yeah. I, and doesn't that kind of make Jesus irrelevant? Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, I'm not supposed to ask that question, Ella. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Nathan's waiting for the lightning to come strike. Uh, no, you're <laughs> saying that theory would, uh, yeah. that, that point of view would. Jesus is always relevant. Exactly. So, uh, okay. So the story's getting complicated because we've got three big questions to answer. And I keep interrupting. Right so. out of the bat. Nah, makes my notes go further. Less work for me. So, um, why did Saul drive them out is the first big question. I mean, of course, yeah, the Torah said to do it, but like I said, he doesn't care. Uh, why are we only told about it now? And what does this have to do with Samuel's death? Oh, I'm sorry. I've got more questions than three. I just saw three. Uh, what is a medium? What is a necromancer? And why is the title witch not being used in the ESV? So those are the questions I started out with. Okay, so the reason I think that it's not brought up until just now is because it wasn't pertinent. Exactly. And, and because apparently ancient Jewish historians <laughs> tell stories the way we do. I, maybe even more so than we do. <laughs> more like we do than we do. Anyway, I shouldn't eat and then record. So, But yeah. on the other hand, you need to eat and then record. So this is not... <laughs> But yeah, so the the simple answer to the first question is the Torah commands people not to engage with the practices um, of witchcraft and mediumship or necromancy. Uh, These people should not be allowed to be a part of the covenant community. This is found in Leviticus 19.31. Do not turn to necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourself unclean. Deuteronomy 18.9, when you come into the land the Lord is giving you, you shall not learn, notice that, learn, to follow the abominable practice of those nations. They sh- there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or daughters as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. So we've got, a, you know, all of our bases covered. For whatsoever, for whosoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and the co- and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nat- nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Mm. So pretty comprehensive command about what is allowed and what isn't. So notice they're learnable practices. This is something that people can be taught to do. Sure. They're not denounced as fraudulent. Nowhere in the Bible are any of these practices denounced as fraudulent or without power. And many different aspects of these occult practices is listed. I mean, God's covering all the bases. He's trying to make sure there's not a loophole. Uh, This is not a concise little thing like you get in the Ten Commandments. This is pretty detailed. And of course, medium and necromancer are listed in that um, passage there. And as we find in 1 Samuel 28, the only reasons we're told not to engage in these practices is it's an abomination to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And God has not allowed it. Period. End of sentence. That's all you need to know. Right. You know, it's because I said so. Pretty much. That's, that's what God's saying. So, uh, more psychological reasons uh, for question one is Saul is kind of overtly devout, at least in the, the beginning. Right. He's big on the ceremony, the over the top grand gestures. Remember, we're all going to fast. Until this battle's over with, or I'm going to kill anyone who does. So uh, then Jonathan almost dies. Um, He likes the form of religion, but he never really seems to get to the heart of God's law. So in removing the the mediums and the necromancers from the land, he he really is doing something that's costing him nothing. It it doesn't impact him. Well, and I I don't think it's... I I think uh, part of it, I think, is that he that he puts them out is not just because of put them out. It sounds like it's inconvenienced <laughs> like them. Put the cat so, out. <laughs> no, no, it sounds like, it sounds like he's inconvenienced them. Um, but I think part of the reason that he does it is because of what we talked about earlier 
or what you mentioned earlier is when you spend more time fearing evil than you do worshiping God, then That's a good point. You know, then sure, yeah, you're gonna uh, you're gonna want to get rid of those people. Yeah, well, and I think that definitely fits. I think the other thing too that fits is as the king who has a prophet who is telling him God's divine holy word. Uh, you don't want any of your enemies to have any access to the spiritual realm. Right. And so if you're, if anyone who, who might displace you as king might get a hold of this source, when you think you've got the, you know, got the market on God's prophets, then you, you're ensuring your own position, so to mm-hmm. speak. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and even Samuel said, hey, God, I can't go anoint David. Saul will kill me. Right. And then what happens at Nob? Saul gets mad and he he kills the prophets. Saul doesn't care about holy people. He's not scared of holy people. And that includes from God's kingdom or the opposite kingdom. If he thinks it's an advantage to him, kill him. Right. Even if it's not an advantage, if they've just managed to irritate him. So, um, again, Saul's just kind of general, like, kill him. Yeah. I... Shoot first, ask <laughs> questions later kind of guy. Well, he, he's very much on what gets the job done now in the most expedient, efficient way to benefit him. Mm -hmm. And it's really funny how that just gets revealed over and over again. And, you know, I kind of, there's a temptation to, to feel a lot of pity for Saul, but then there's a, there's this part of me, it's like, no, he gets completely what he deserves. So, uh, he's one of those characters that you can identify with in a lot of ways as a human being. Yeah. Which again, uh, which again, when you really think about it, if, especially since we identify with him so much, it just points back to God's mercy and going, mm-hmm. "Yep, I, <laughs> right. I, I have no plea," you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's it. And, and then you remember how many times Saul was given another chance mm-hmm. and one mm-hmm. more chance and another chance, and he just he went through them all over and over. But the other reason where we're told this is it's a setup for the story uh you know the, the writer of samuel has no interest in presenting the monarchy as something grand and glorious in order to be celebrated yes it's part of god's design it's inevitable it's what has to happen but everyone seems to forget that this king is not the savior right and so he he doesn't care if Saul does good things. Why should he care? Saul's the bad guy in his story. David's almost a bad guy in his story. And he is, he doesn't want us to, to feel any kind of sympathy for Saul. So, oh yeah, by the way, if this story I'm getting ready to tell is going to make sense, you need to know that he did this. Right. But before you get a chance to celebrate, we're going to tell you how he messed it up. <laughs> so... <laughs> The, the writer also connects this back to, to Samuel's death, and not just because um, there's um, the setup that we talked about earlier, but he wants to give you that sense of the passage of time. Samuel's died. He's been buried. He's been mourned. Mm-hmm. He's in Rama. And so you, you get this feeling that Samuel didn't die on a Monday, and Saul consults the medium on a Tuesday. You know, there, there's some some distance in there and but we're also seeing that that samuel's restraining influence on saul is fading Mm -hmm. and because would saul have consulted a medium or a necromancer or witch if samuel was still alive right that's that's the big question i don't think he would have I, i i think he probably would have just irritated samuel to death um so it's not just, you know, it's not just this idea that, that Saul um, didn't have option. I mean, he, he did part of this because he didn't have any other option, but part of that not having the option was not having that influence of Samuel in his life. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the, the, this person that, that Saul's going to is in the nation, or she's close to the nation, we'll get to whether she, where she's located here in a minute, uh, is... It shows that the nation itself is feeling that that lack of restraint that Samuel's mm-hmm. presence had on them. So here's the big question. What is a medium and what is a necromancer? So this is where it gets really, really muddy. Um, we've got problems. Number one, language changes. Sure. Uh, language is defined by the culture and the subculture and the point of history in which that particular word's used. 
So we can piece together what a word means from the Bible and how it's used in the text contemporary with the Bible. We can talk about what it means based on archaeological finds. And then we have to recognize the way we use these words today is so far removed from the way the Bible used them Mm -hmm. that we may not have the same definitions. Right. Now, the other problem is occult practices, by definition, are hidden. Sure. So if you're not an outsider and you haven't been taught you know, what this specifically means or how this is specifically enacted, the terminology you're using might be wrong. Yeah. And practitioners of occult information typically did not write how-to manuals. Even when they did write books, it was written with the presumption that it was going to be taught with a mentor, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. there's going to be some kind of apprenticeship so that it, the text could be explained because if it was just given out there to the world, put in a public library and, you know, Billy Joe Bob or Betty Sue goes out and gets it off the shelf and starts using it without any kind of uh, instruction that they might actually cause more damage than good and might actually wind up hurting themselves or someone else. Sure. So this is part of um, the way this knowledge is translated and transmitted, and therefore the way outsiders define what's going on varies from the way insiders <laughs> define what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the other problem we have is the biblical writers don't care about the mechanics of any of this. They don't want to give you a how-to manual, how to dis, you know call up the dead for a discussion, or how to tell a fortune, or to divine something. That that's not the purpose. The purpose is to tell you not to do it. So of course, there's not any kind of definition because the definition by nature would almost demand that you got a description of how to. Right. So um, many Christians today also don't know proper definitions for both the biblical terms and how we would define this for today. Uh, we, you know, there's this, this attitude of, oh, it's evil, and so they don't actually study what this evil is well mm-hmm. enough to put proper terms to it. Uh, I, I read some commentaries that I, I'm like, this person has no clue what they're talking about. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm a huge expert on it, but I have enough familiarity to know that I knew they were wrong. And to further complicate matters, as if none of that were enough. We have a wealth of internet experts who all think they know the proper definition for every occult thing out there because they watch Supernatural on TV twice. Yeah. You know? You're, of course, using expert, ironically. Yeah. Yeah. And and basically what they've done is they've adopted these um, terms and they've defined them according to their taste. Uh, you know, they might like the way a certain occult term sounds, and so they want it, this ability to incorporate certain aspects so they can apply it to themselves. Mm-hmm. So they, they just redefine it in order to, to make it more personal to them. So, and, and this has been going on for a very long time at this point. Um, this is not something that's new with the Internet. This has actually been happening over eons of history. And so... Combine all this together, um, what we wind up with in the Bible is kind of a flavor of what's f- forbidden, but we, we don't have an actual, actual depiction of exactly of what's being performed within this episode or any other episode. And so I think that's part of the reason why that passage in Deuteronomy I read, where we've got all of these different aspects, not just titles, but aspects of what's being done listed, then it, it's to to kind of combat the, this murkiness mm-hmm. that surrounds um, around, these, around these practices. So, however, all of that being said, in this instance, this is one time when actually knowing a little bit about the mechanism might actually help us understand the story better. Okay. So, um, we're going to talk about this, uh, about that, but... I want to kind of. It's still not a how-to. It's still not a how-to. Uh, yeah, I'm not not going to give you a step-by-step uh, methodology to call up Samuel. Honestly, I think it. No one would really want to call Samuel up. He seemed kind of grumpy about it. So if you read the story, he didn't yeah. act like he was thrilled with what Saul had done. And yeah, he was not happy. <laughs> we're going to talk about why that's important too. But um, 
So I want to kind of talk a little bit about definitions. Uh, medium, it basically, and I say basically because, again, this word has kind of been used in several different ways. Uh, a medium is one who allows a spiritual entity. Uh, most of the times as Christians, we would say this is a demon. Uh, a, um, they might be referred to in other circles as a ghost or an alien, mm-hmm. an angel. But they would, the spiritual entity would take control of their mind and body to speak through that person into the physical realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, a, a medium is believed to be out of control during this time. That you know, They're okay. kind of either yeah. sitting in the background of their mind somewhere, watching this happen through them, or they're someplace else. Um, but mediums can, can vary. Some of them claim only to be able to speak with one specific spiritual entity, that right. they have one right. guiding, yeah, one spirit guide. Others claim that they can... Um, call up whoever they want to in order to communicate. Most of the ones on TV are just going to be, they can talk to whoever's around and I'm sensing someone with a J. So, (laughs) but now a a necromancer is one who uh, specifically communicates with the dead, not angels, not demons, not aliens, specifically with the dead. Right. Um, It's, it's a useful tool uh, or skill in cultures where ancestor worship was observed. Sure. Uh, again, not allowed or condoned by scripture. A necromancer usually remains in control whenever um, they're commu- talking to these dead spirits, unlike a medium. They'll often be able to claim to control these spirits and even be able to exercise these spirits if they are proving to be a problem. Right, right. Uh, they claim they can force spirits to reveal spiritual truths or secrets. Uh, as the dead aren't bound by time and space, it's believed they can even reveal certain aspects of the future. And this is the reason why you would want to talk to them. And, you know, not just, hey, Grandpa, where'd you leave the will? Right, but you right. know, there's actually some, some bigger question to ask. Uh, it's also believed that the dead could influence the gods. And that um, the dead, because they are spirit beings, they could have more direct communication with the god. Um, there's actually, this is, um, part of, and I don't want to equate the two cause it's a different, it's a different kingdom and it's a different, um, I really don't know how to describe it cause I'm still processing through, but in, in Christian communities, we see this in the Orthodox community, the idea of saints in the Catholic community mm. too, the saints praying on behalf of us, not that there's a worship of these saints, but there is an honor, uh, paid to them because they, have lived in a holy life. They're now in the presence of God and we can ask them to pray for us. Like we would ask somebody in church to pray for us. Right. Right. So, you know, it's like, Oh, I know, you know, sister Sally's a great Christian and she prays regularly. I'm going to, I want to be on her list. So, um, so we still see that kind of in Christianity and I don't think we should be scared when we see practices overlap, uh, not forbidden practices, but if truth is truth in one realm, a lot of times it's truth in the other realm too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, gravity works for the believing and the non-believing alike. And sometimes the, the principles just carry over. And it's not to say that it's evil in one circumstance and not evil. All right. It's, what am I even trying to say? I know what I'm trying to say, but I, do you I don't know? know what you're trying to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. To... I'm still trying to think about what you've been saying. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm trying to say that we shouldn't reject something just because we think it's something that pagans or non-believers it's, do. It's something that resembles something evil. Yeah, because you know the first thing evil does is try to co-opt what is good and twist it to make it their own. Fair and enough. so, a lot of times, if we're re- just rejecting everything that evil has said belongs to it, we're really just disarming ourselves. And, you know, this is the whole process of redemption. Uh, at one point, we were evil. God redeemed us so we can belong to him. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, the other thing you can do if you're a necromancer is to ask the dead to enact blessings or curses on people. So I'm in, when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm, again, using that language typically, usually, probably, mm-hmm. because there's always going to be someone who is going to say, well, that's not how I define it. Um, it's not going to mean the same thing to everyone everywhere because it has been, uh, the terminology's just been twisted to fit whatever. So um, there's some reasons to think that a uh, you know medium may not be the best word here. Uh, necromancer 
probably fits a little better. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to talk about the Hebrew after a while. But why not a witch? Um, that was our final question on the list. Why, why are we not calling her a witch? Well, a witch is someone who's made a pact with a spiritual entity. Uh, this is where um, we get this idea of selling your soul to the devil for a, uh, for a spiritual power or some kind of ability, making a deal with Satan, the devil's bargain. Uh, these phrases are still very much part of our vocabulary today. Right. And this, this skill that, you inqui- that somebody would acquire through this may or may not have anything to do with necromancy or a medium. Uh, there's actually two very famous stories. Uh, there's some debate on uh, how they play out. But Robert Johnson, uh, he was a famous blues guitarist. And it right. said that he sold his soul to Satan at the crossroads to gain his ability. Uh, Tommy Johnson, uh, he says it was a dark figure. Tommy Johnson and Robert Johnson, no relation. Uh, about the same time period, though, but they both share a similar story. Hmm. And uh, Robert Johnson was referenced on the movie, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Right. And you said, well, why did you sell your soul to Satan? Well, I wasn't using it anyhow. So <laughs> that's... It's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah, it's, it's worth watching again. Um, but the, the English translator had to choose a term. And they chose medium because it refers specifically to someone who, who can speak, who can allow the spirits yeah, to connect speak. with spirits. Yeah. Uh, occasionally you'll find that the term spiritist used. That's really not a great word because it refers to someone who believes that spirits are immortal and only temporarily inhabit a body. Um, as they go through a cycle of reincarnation. So, you know, we don't believe in uh, reincarnation. Plus, it doesn't really reflect the Canaanite theology, because even though gods could die and were, re- were reborn, that was typically not something that happened to human beings. And uh, human beings, you know, were buried and lived in another world and lived a nice little existence. And if their graves were properly cared for and they were fed in a timely manner, and if they weren't, well, then that's when they came back as vengeful spirits and ghosts to haunt the, um, the physical realm, according to their thought. Now, one with a familiar spirit, um, this is where necromancer um, kind of falls in that, the, the word that's translated necromancer. The Hebrew is one who knows, one who is familiar with mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the implication, one who is familiar with the spirits. So uh, this is the reason why sometimes you'll get that translation of familiar spirit. Gotcha. Um, okay. So um, it's close, but it's, I think it's a little deficient because usually when you think of familiar spirit, when you're talking in terms of occult knowledge, you're talking about a very specific spirit, a singular spirit that that person knows. It's not just a uh, someone who's familiar with the spirit world, but actually familiar with that one spirit. So this is the reason why it's so hard for English readers to understand exactly what's going on here is because we don't have good definitions. We don't have good definitions from the Hebrew. We don't have good definitions in Christian cultures. There's really not good definitions in the occult culture. We just kind of had to pick the ones that fit the best. Okay. So um, now that we've gone down that rabbit trail and we haven't even got to verse four, (laughs) We find out that the, the Philistines have uh, assembled their armies. Uh, I can't read my own writing. It looks like they're at Schumann. Uh, the Philistines mustered their forces. David, uh, where is this? <laughs> at Shinem. Shinem. Okay. And the, the uh, main reason that this is important is because we have a story in Second Kings four eight and that story is the widow with with the oil so we've got this connection with with two prominent women uh characters and so we're going to talk about that connection when we get to the widow but i don't want to get there too too quick uh we got enough going on in this story before we jump into another one so saul has gathered his army at gilboa uh that's that's a mountaintop and when when saul saul saw the pharisees uh philistines sorry man (laughs) which ones are you after i don't even know when saul saw the philistines uh his heart was uh 
trembled greatly. Trembled greatly. He was much afraid. He was terrified. I don't even know why I can't talk now. I was but, wondering why you said, because you said trebled at first. Trebled, like, yeah. Different. Yeah, different. Yeah, trembled. So this is the reason why Saul needs to hear from God. It, it's not that he wants personal guidance. He doesn't want to repent for all the stuff he's messed up. He's in trouble, and God needs to come bail him out. Um Plus, we also know that it's dangerous to go into battle without God's blessing. This has been part of what Saul has traditionally practiced, and this has been something that's worked for Saul yeah. in the past. And the prophets don't really want to hang out with him anymore because he tends to kill them. Yeah, you know, it loses his temper, has a bad day, it doesn't matter. And, you know, and there's a good possibility, too, that without the blessing of a prophet or the uh, some kind of sign from God through the priest, which, you know, he killed all of them— um, his men wouldn't even follow him into war. Right. Because remember David's um, men, before they went to war at Keilah, he said, they're like, are you sure you heard from God? Are you sure this is the right thing to do? We, you, you need to hear from a prophet. I know where to find one. Pretty much. Actually, he was a priest at that point. But yeah, it was. But the idea that there needed to be supernatural confirmation this was the right thing to do is very much a part of the entire culture. Makes sense. So verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by the prophet. Or, and so we're given the ways that, that Saul has attempted to hear from God. Dreams. This is typically how God communicates with foreign kings. This is not how God communicates with his people. We have him communicating to Pharaoh this way. We have him communicating to Nebuchadnezzar this way. We, we don't have him talking to his people. What about Gideon? Gideon's one of the few. Um, I would say, what, yeah, because he had the dream. Yeah, he had the dream that he went in the enemy's camp. Well, no, he did go into the enemy's camp. I thought that was in a dream. No, the, 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 the Oh, the men of the camp had the dream. The men of the camp okay, had the gotcha. dream. Okay, Yeah. Sorry. It's yeah. been a minute. Uh, yeah, it has been. And so the fact that, that Saul's saying, hey, you know, I am a king like other nations. I need, you to, I need you to talk to me like you would talk to the kings of other nations is very telling. And the Urim, when he, um, he couldn't use it, why? Because Abathar took it to David. And where's Abathar at? Abathar's in Ziklag. Abathar's mm-hmm. <laughs> with the Philistines. And so the fact that that Saul can't use it isn't because he doesn't want to try. It's because it's just impossible. And it's impossible because he created the situation because Abathar went to David because Saul killed his Abathar's family at Nope. Right. So, you know, prophecy. When your boss kills your family, it's it's a good time to resign. I don't even think you needed two weeks' notice at that point. You know, it's kind of an easy out there. So... Uh, you don't want to be on the rehire list anyway. <laughs> right. So prophecy. Uh, Samuel had been Saul's personal prophet. Uh, Samuel had established the schools of prophecy. And it's reasonable to presume that when Samuel cut off prophetic um, connection to Saul, which happened after the, the incident with the Amalekites, that Samuel probably commanded his students, or at least the students followed the example of Samuel. Hey, uh-uh, we're, we're not going back. Um, so that's that's a reasonable proposition. And at the same time, you know, there's a prophet named Gad who went to find David so he could speak to David. Uh, so more confirmation, David is the appropriate king of Israel. So verse 7, Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul makes this complete turn. I and mean, we opened up the chapter with Saul drove the necromancers and the mediums from the land, and now he's, I, I need to be inquiring of them. Well, typically before this, he had inquired of the Lord. So we, we see how total his, um, his shift away from absor- observing the Torah has become because he, his inquiries to God had been totally rejected. Mm-hmm. So. Saul does what so many people do whenever they, they don't get the response from God they want mm-hmm. or they hope or they think they deserve. Um, he, he decides that he's going to force God to talk to him. 
And he, he doesn't repent. He doesn't show any remorse for any of the things he does. Um, none of the things that have separated him from God's presence. He doesn't say, God, you know, forgive me for not listening to you. He, he justifies breaking God's law, and he, he tries to kind of blackmail uh, God into talking to him by kind of playing the system. Right. And so, you know, I get it on one hand, because like I said, I, I do identify with Saul. I mean, repentance is an ugly, ugly process sometimes. It's painful. It, it, it's messy. And, you know, if you could avoid that, it, it would be really nice. And, you know, quite honestly, we, we live in a culture where it's become very common to avoid repentance. And we, we do mm-hmm. that by, well, God loves us the way we are. And he accepts us the way we are. And a loving God would never make me this way. I mean, we could go on yeah. and on and or, on. Or we do the non-apology. The, thinking of a specific one. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm just, I mean, yeah. I mean, we yeah. all know what it is. The, well, you know, I would, would like to apologize if my actions offended you. Yeah. It, but you're not sorry for what you did. You're sorry if someone got offended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry you had your reaction. Yeah. When the truth is you need to be sorry for what you, you did. Take responsibility, which that's something Saul has never do. Uh, uh, it, he never does. And, you know, the idea that God is love and he accepts us where we are, absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with that to a point. But the thing is, love is always transformative. And mm-hmm. you aren't really engaging in that love if it's not transforming. Well, Saul never transforms. Even whenever God gives him that new heart back in that early days, whenever um, you know, Samuel anointed a prophet, he goes out and he prophesies. It, it doesn't matter that God gave him a new heart because he doesn't, he doesn't follow through with it. Right. He, he just goes back to being the superstitious farm boy that he had been, the, the guy who went and said, hey, um, yeah, let's go talk to the prophet to see if we can find the donkeys. He didn't even go look for Samuel because he wanted some kind of spiritual insight. He did it because it was expedient. Saul has always been that person, even though God had reached out to him and said, hey, you can be something new. Right. So, um, you know, it, it seems almost cruel to some people. And I, I've read some articles recently suggesting that that this is cruelty, that God has rejected Saul so completely. I, I think what people forget is when you do things to hurt the person who loves you, mm-hmm. it causes a breach in the relationship. Sure. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they don't love you anymore. And I was kind of thinking of, of ways to describe this. And I think this is a principle most parents get very easily. Uh, in my case, I'm going to use my granddaughter. She's discovered pinching. She loves to pinch. Right. And it hurts me. And she's got those little bitty fingers. Oh, yeah, the babies, they, they get those little sharp nails. They're, yeah. yeah. It's no joke. And, and so what do I do when she pinches me? I set her down. Mm-hmm. She throws a fit. She acts like I just hurt her, like I slapped her when I just set her down. Right. Now, the minute she agrees to stop pinching me, man, she's back on my lap, and I'm happy she's there, and I'm having a good time. Mm-hmm. But I don't have to let her sit and pinch me. And yet I think a lot of us think that not only should we let, God should let us pinch him and punch him and do everything else to him because he's God. There's this idea that somehow he shouldn't react to us. Right. And, uh, you know, that's just, that's just not right. That's, that's the wrong, um, wrong attitude to have. But this is the thing Saul never gets about his relationship with God. He never understands that it can be repaired. All he has to do is repent. And that, that's the one thing David gets right. So this time when Saul doesn't get what he wants from God, he doesn't get that supernatural evidence that God loves him or God is going to guide him. He, he throws a fit by deliberately rebelling against God's command. Right. He, in, in popular parlance, he acts out. You know, Fair enough. this is this is when dad would have grabbed us and busted our butts. Uh, but he's, he's going to to force God to to talk because by yelling louder at God, if you will. Uh, and he, he's going to yell louder by going to a person who supposedly has control over the spirits. He's mm-hmm. asking for a medium. And the Hebrew, um, it literally reads, he asked for a woman of lady of Ab. So it's a, it's a really interesting phrase. It, you wind up with some really bizarre 
translations. Translations. Um, matter of fact, in the English, I, we pretty much lose one of those, you know, because we got a woman of lady of ob. So a lot of times mm-hmm. we just get a, a woman. woman. Yeah. Well, it's not what the Hebrew says. It's never been what the Hebrew says. And, and but the problem is how you interpret this phrase will, you know, obviously um, dictate what words you use. But we're, we've got to try to figure out what is the most accurate translation for the Hebrew. So um, a little side note in that before we kind of get into that is this is this passage is being used, has been used against women so often that women are more susceptible to the dark arts Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. they are women. Um, This is only one of two accounts where we have a a king specifically seeking out a woman who's able to talk to the the spiritual realm. And one is here, and the other one was when King Josiah consults Huldah. Now, Huldah is recognized as a legitimate prophetess. Mm And she is not condemned as a witch, a necromancer, or a medium. She is 100% shown as being a true and faithful servant of the Lord. So the fact that we have one verse, one instance, where a king says, I want to talk to a woman, being used to condemn all women as possible witches, and this has happened in in various time periods, but nobody ever really wants to talk about Hulda. I was an adult before I ever heard about Hulda. Right, right. Uh, and here she she was celebrated. So don't get caught up on the fact that this is a woman. We're going to talk about why it's important she's a woman. Obviously, it's important, or the Bible wouldn't have specified. But um, the story is not a proof text to talk about the evil inclinations of women. And for men to to say, oh, well... You know, this is just um, this is just a problem for women. Because, by the way, the um, the word for witch is not a gender exclusive term. Gotcha. Even the word witch is not a gendered word. Right. And matter of fact, you know, we have a translation of the Bible from about twelve fifty um, A.D. C.E. that the midwives in Egypt are referred to as witches. Hmm. Because it's this idea, not only of uh, someone who forms a pact with uh, Satan, but it's also someone who has the ability to combine things to create new things. So, of course, women, I mean, we're cooking, we're baking, all of a sudden... Right. Hold on. Got a child in the room. Sorry about that. So, what were you saying? (laughs) No, I I was saying that, that... the idea of women being able to combine elements to create something new, it, it's something that we're all familiar with. If you ever watched your mom whip up a salad or a mm-hmm, cake mm-hmm. or a pie, this is something that's been very much considered the realm of, of women. So um, one of my, my pet peeves is when I have seen people actually take this passage to, to try to say that women are inherently evil, uh, there's a problem because the other, um, the other thing is if you get to looking at how many times people in the Bible consulted false prophets, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they went to Who the were men. Yeah. And it's almost exclusively men. And so, uh, which is kind of a buzzword that catches a lot of attention where false prophets kind of just floats through the Bible. Sure. So, um, you know, don't get, don't get hung up on it. And, um, so I'm trying to decide how far afield we can get, uh, because this kind of gets a little detailed. I, I think we can get it in. I, I pulled a lot of this information from a paper called The Second Millennium Antecedents to the Hebrew Ab, which Ab is the word that's translated as medium. And uh, the paper was written by Harry A. Hoffner, and he's at Brandeis University. Okay. Uh, it was um, published by the Society of Biblical Literature. And he examines this collection of words, and he examines words from, Samar- from the Sumerian, Hittite, Ugaritic, Assyrian, the Hebrew text. Now, this collection of words is not cognates. They're not loan words from, another, um, from each other, but they all share certain phonetic connections. And they're also used very closely in similar usages. And so the, these texts kind of uh, where the word is fi- where the word is found show that there is some connection even across these cultures mm-hmm. 
So um, the word is always used in connection with practices where the spirits of the ancestors are arising from pits in the ground. And so these pits in the ground uh, were something that was quite, they were quite common. They were dug with ceremonial tolls. They were baited with food, with jewels, with blood from a sacrificed animal. And, and the idea was that by putting these things in the pits or around the mouths of the pits, that the spirits would then dead, rise up. Dead would rise. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. It's like fishing. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Baited. Um, the most probably accessible example of this is actually found in the Odyssey. So Homer wrote this, so we're looking around the same time period, roughly, uh, and it describes that the pits being dug and these masses of spirits of the dead arising to drink honeyed milk that Odysseus had offered in the blood of slaughtered sheep. And it says, they came thronging in crowds about the pit from every side with wondrous cry and a pale fear seized me. We also have it in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Nurgle opens a hole where the spirit of Enkidu, which we talked about him mm. with uh, Jacob, issued forth like a puff of wind from the netherworld. And um, these, it's interesting to note that when these pits are referred to in other texts, it's men who are, who are digging these pits and using them to speak to the dead. Okay. Um, but there's food, like I said, there's, there's blood, there's um, clothing, there's other ceremonial objects that were placed in them. And the, the purpose isn't always explained in each text. But when we look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's shown to be a way of giving and retrieving information from the spirit world. We have a, a Hittite text, which includes the interesting detail that a, a silver ladder was lowered into the text so that the spirits could climb up. Which Into the holes? Yeah. yeah climb, well, climb, yeah, put in the you holes. You said the text. Oh, sorry. <laughs> the silver ladder was put oh, in the text. Oh, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> I've got, like, so much information that's floating in my head. Yeah, the silver l ladder was put into the holes so the spirits could climb up like Jacob with the ladder mm -hmm. to heaven. Sure. This idea that the spirits need some kind of mechanism by which to traverse from the spirit realm into the physical realm. And, of course, like I said, we do see that kind of imagery within the Bible uh, are we saying that spirits need that? But I think, no, not necessarily. But I think God allowed Jacob to see an image that he could understand with the, the, the angels ascending and descending on this ladder. Yeah. So, uh, and also, the, of course, the Tower of Babel was supposed to be a gateway for the gods to travel down. So, uh, again, talked about that on our Tower of Babel episode. But um, at the end of these ceremonies where the, the dead were supposed to come up out of the pits, at the end of them, you were supposed to seal them with sticks or rocks or leaves or sand or even cloth coverings. Because if you, if you didn't, then who knew what was going to wander out of the pit, you know, when you weren't looking. Right. And uh, in Gilgamesh, uh, Ishtar gets mad and she, she threatens that. This is the goddess Ishtar. She says that she can smash the gates of the netherworld so that the dead can pour out and become more numerous than the living. Hmm. So this idea of... The pits being able to, to allow the spirit and the physical realm to interact was very much a part of every major culture of the time that this text is being written, uh, written about. And they, the, like I said, the words all connect right back to this Hebrew word of ab. And so when we have the story of Saul speaking to dead Samuel, now we're, we're trying to figure out how does this work within the Greek and within the Hebrew text? And if Hoffner is correct, Ab can't possibly mean witch or medium or even necromancer. It would actually lend itself to a, a, being translated better as the lady of the pit, a woman who is the lady of the pit, or a woman who serves the lady of the pit hmm. actually fits much better. And Zamora, um, which we had um, at the beginning of this series, we talked about, hey, he's one of our main commentators we draw on quite frequently. Mm -hmm. He goes with his, his favorite translation is the woman who serves the lady of the pit, indicating that this woman was actually in service to the goddess who controlled the transfer of information between mm -hmm. the spirit realm and the physical realm. And so, Ab, uh, according to Ab, he, uh, sorry, according to Samara, he actually thinks that Ab doesn't refer to a pit, that it does refer to a spirit. But that is 
the real debate. Is ab the word for spirit or is ab the word hmm. for the pit which spirits come through? Um, there's, there's good arguments on both sides of that. It would not be unusual for the Hebrew to actually use ab to refer to the pit that the spirit came through because Hebrew will often contract phrases to a single word sure, to sure. convey a meaning. So this is what, what Hoffner um, has proposed. And we're going to talk about, I actually lean towards Hoffner's um, translation. You know, it seems to make sense. It, it really does. And we're going to talk about points in the text that actually seem to confirm this even further. Okay. So, um, but yeah, we've, um, we're on page 35. I still have another 70-some-odd notes just on this chapter. Okay. Well, <laughs> so. we, should, uh, we should be able to get some good stuff out of this. But I hope so. I think it's a good place to break. And um, everyone, uh, hopefully you had a good time going into all the obscurity with us. I'm sure that's what keeps you coming back. Um, I don't know and, why they would otherwise. <laughs> and if, if you want to uh, be part of diving into all the obscurity, just be sure to hit us up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's where we mainly are. Twitter and Instagram, you can get us there too. Raven Creek SC is our handle on all three of those. RavenCreekSC.com gets you to our website where we host this show and two others. Uh, Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington and The Commentarians with mm-hmm. Joe Zaragoza and more often Emily and sometimes me uh, are on there. Um, and just a good place to, to find out whatever you want to find out about us. Uh, <laughs> So I guess uh, until next time, have a good week and have fun. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.